continue uh, working through the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, this week we will look at Lord's Day 28, that's uh, questions 75 through 77. If you have a Psalter hymnal there, that would be on page 884, Lord's Day 28. Pretty substantial answers here. So page 884. Let's, uh, let's read these questions together, questions and answers 75 through 77. Question 75. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me, the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more through the Holy Spirit who lives with Christ and in us we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body are by one soul. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood, as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, that take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
So since uh, question 66, we've been talking about the sacraments uh, through the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, generally, we talked about the sacraments in question 25, in Lord's Day 25, the questions there. Uh, we talked about baptism in Lord's Days 26 and 27. And now we're on to the second of two sacraments that we have under the New Covenant, uh, the Lord's Supper. And so we'll spend the next couple weeks talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, and if you look in your catechism there, you'll notice that the Lord's Supper uh, takes up really three days, uh, day 28, 29, and 30 of questions in the Heidelberg Catechism. That's questions 75 to 82. Um, you know, if you just think about that for a minute, recognizing that there's that many questions directed uh, and concerning the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, uh, we need to recognize that in the Catechism, there's no doctrine that receives as much attention as the Lord's Supper. That may surprise you, but that's actually the case if you look through the Catechism. Right, justification, we talked about, I think, in a week, which the question wasn't even really directed at justification uh, in those particular terms. It was talking about the doctrine of justification, uh, but really there was only one or two questions concerning justification. Same thing with sanctification. Faith had a couple questions, and you would think that perhaps those kinds of doctrines would have taken up more room. Why not why wouldn't we have three Lord's Days about justification and maybe three Lord's Days about sanctification? Well, we inherited this catechism. We don't get to be the ones that dictate what it says. Uh, but I think that tells us something really important about the nature of this particular catechism. It comes within a particular historical context. Now, we know that this is the case uh, for various things that we read, right? You know, all the books that we get in our email, maybe I, I'm the only one. I know a bunch of you read a lot too, but, you know, you get all these uh, emails from Crossway or from uh, other publishers, and they have all these books that seem to be about the same topics coming out together. It's because particular ages uh, require us to speak about particular things. And that was true about the Heidelberg Catechism. It came within a particular context uh, that certain things need to be, needed to be emphasized. And, and one such case is the Lord's Supper, because, of course, the Heidelberg Catechism comes uh, to us within the context of the Reformation. Uh, just think for a minute that the Heidelberg Catechism was completed in 1563. So maybe you're not good with timelines and numbers and in placing things in their timelines. That's okay. I'll give you a couple other dates uh, just to illustrate. So if the Heidelberg Catechism was completed in 1563, just think about the fact that in 1517, that's when Luther posted his 95 theses in Wittenberg, Germany. In 1529, Luther debated with Zwingli about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In 1559, that's when John Calvin finished his final edition of the Institutes. 
Okay, so we're looking at a, at a fairly brief, compacted period of time. And, and even so, if we even think back of, to 1517 and think of Luther, I mean, that's not quite the ref, like that's the very beginnings of things happening. And it's not really until we get to uh, those, you know, this, the, the end of the first half of the 16th century that we have Reformed doctrine really being solidified uh, and Reformed churches really being established. And so in many ways, the Heidelberg Catechism comes really early on in the Reformation. Um, one other thing to make note of is the fact um, that one of the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias or Sinus, studied under both John Calvin in Geneva and Philip Melanchthon, the friend and fellow reformer with Luther in Germany. So that's some of the historical context here. Uh, but beyond the historical context of what's going on, the fact that this is coming in the midst of the Reformation, uh, as an outflow of the Reformation, there's also a political and theological context that this document comes to us in. Um, you may or may not know, I don't know what you guys talked about in terms of the introduction to the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, but the Heidelberg Catechism was composed for one of the few territories of the Calvinistic faith within Germany at the time. So there's, there's a pocket, a territory in Germany that is Calvinistic, that is reformed in that way. And they're surrounded by Lutherans in Germany, and they're surrounded by Roman Catholic territories in Germany. Now remember that during the Reformation and the Middle Ages for that matter, politics is theological and theology is political. Those things go hand in hand. Whoever the ruler is, whatever their particular persuasion is theologically, that's the way that territory goes. And in this particular territory, there's a Calvinistic leader, Frederick III, and he wants uh, and asked that commissioned, essentially, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism to be composed. And so it was. It comes in the context of that particular political setting. All right. So then why so much time spent on the Lord's Supper? Well, if you're in a territory where you're the minority around and you have Roman Catholics and Lutherans all around you, well, you're probably going to want to define your doctrine, particularly of the Lord's Supper, because you disagree with Rome in particular. You're going to want to do it in a way that is going to be clear and robust. And that's what we find in the Heidelberg Catechism. We find a clear and robust uh, picture um, of the Lord's Supper. And particularly, you know, coming out of the Reformation, and we're still in the early decades, the Reformed need to define themselves positively over against the errors that the Reformation is seeking to reform, right? 
And one of those areas in particular in terms of practice is the Lord's Supper. So, here we have the Heidelberg Catechism uh, teaching on the Lord's Supper. Uh, before we jump into it, though, I do want to um, make mention of the fact that behind that positive setting forth of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper is essentially a refutation of the errors of the Roman understanding of what the Lord's Supper is. What is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church regarding the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, that Reformed people have a problem with? Transubstantiation. Thank you, Jen. So tell me what transubstantiation is. It's where the body and blood of Jesus literally in the bread, the bread literally becomes his body, and the wine literally becomes Yes. Yes. So transubstantiation means that there's a change in substance. So that in the act, right, remember if we talk about Roman Catholic theology, there's an ex opere operato, right, in the working of the work, something happens. So when the priest says, this is my body, what happens in that moment is that the substance of the bread changes to the physical body of Christ. When the priest says, this is my blood, the substance of the wine changes into the physical blood of Jesus. Now, if you are a former Roman Catholic and you've taken the Mass, you'll recognize the fact that when you ate the bread, it tasted like bread. And when you drank the wine, it smelled and tasted like wine. Right? So what Rome is not saying is that the physical piece of bread that's sitting right here, it becomes a piece of flesh. Right? It, it doesn't. But what's happening is the substance is changing. And there we have to get into all kinds of discussions about Roman Catholic metaphysics. So you have the substance of something and you have the accidents of something. Not like an accident I spilled over my coffee. But the accidents, the things that, that you can perceive about a particular thing. Now the accidents remain the same. And the accidents of bread are, well, it's smushy. And it tastes good. And it smells good. And it's this particular color, right? Those are the accidents. But the substance of it, the breadness of it is gone. Though the accidents remain. And the substance, the breadness, is replaced with Christ's flesh. So you taste and see and smell bread, but in its, in its essence, in its substance, it is Christ's body. Does that make sense? A little bit? I'm not going any further, though. <laughs> We're just going to stay there. All right. So Christ, for the Roman Catholic, is physically present in the supper. But not only is he just physically present in the supper, because he is physically present in the supper, in that particular way, the Eucharist is actually a continuation of the sacrifice of Christ. 
So that every time the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood, there is an atonement being made. Okay? In a very real sense. So that Christ is actually being re-sacrificed during the supper, and that sacrifice is efficacious. That's why they call it an altar. And we don't have altars, right? But there is an altar because there is an actual sacrifice taking place. But that, of course, leads to a problem. I mean, a couple of very big problems, not the least of which is the Christological problem of Christ's hypostatic union and the fact that he's continued incarnate in heaven. We won't go there. But what about Christ's once-for-all sacrifice? What about the sufficiency of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice? How could there possibly be any assurance of of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice if it's not complete, if it's ongoing, if it's perpetual? How much is enough? The reformers looked at that and looked at Scripture, right? Because it's coming in the context of the Reformation where there's already been this renaissance going back to the source, right? The ad fontes, and and in that you had people going back to the Scriptures and saying, well, what do the Scriptures say about this particular thing? And what you find in the Scriptures is something very different than the doctrine that underlies the Lord's Supper in Roman Catholic theology. Because in the scriptures you have places like Hebrews 7, 27 that says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Or Hebrews 9, 24 to 26, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If that's not enough, I'll give you one more. And there's plenty more. But Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time... A single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, if Christ must be re-sacrificed continually, there is no assurance. But if Christ's sacrifice was once for all, then therein lies the ground for assurance. And the scriptures are plain and the scriptures are clear that indeed Christ's sacrifice once and for all was sufficient. I mean, that last passage is from Hebrews. He sat down at the Father's right hand. That particular work as mediator is finished. 
as Christ himself said on the cross. Ray, did you have a question? No. Does it say that the Catholic Church does not believe in assurance? Right. And so the Heidelberg Catechism, as a standing in contradiction to Rome, is setting forth a doctrine of the Lord's Supper that is clear and intends to be biblical. That's what we have before us. All right. Any, any questions particular to that kind of introductory material? No questions? Okay. All right, then let's, let's look for a minute at question 75. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? Notice there. How does the supper remind and assure you, you already know how the, the Heidelberg Catechism in its language is very pastorally sensitive. And you have that right here. It's not merely setting forth a doctrine, but it's reminding us that the Lord's Supper was intended by the Lord that we would be reminded and assured of what Christ has done. And so first... Um, we have, in, in this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With his command come these promises. So there's, there's two promises that the, the Heidelberg Catechism gives us to think about when we're thinking about how we are reminded and assured. The first, there's a reminder in the sign. Right in the bread and the wine, that Christ died for me. There's a reminder of the fact of Christ's sacrifice. So you see it in those signs. You see the bread, you see the wine, and you remember Christ died for my sins. And secondly, the second promise is that there is a sacramental relationship between the sign and the thing signified. Have I ever said that before? <laughs> I, think, I think I say it in my sleep. There's a sacramental relationship in between the sign and the thing signified. Listen to the language of the Catechism. As surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body poured out. So that as the one who by faith partakes of the body and blood, not the substantially changed body and blood, but the bread and the wine which stand as signs as, as, as you partake of that, so that sign is signifying the underlying spiritual reality, which is union with Jesus by faith. Right? Now, why do we take bread and wine and have this sacrament? 
Because Christ commanded it, right? Is it odd that on the night in which he was betrayed, he did this? Is that odd? Does that come from out of the blue? No. Just think about, think about uh, the way that Jesus spoke in John 6 about the fact that all of those who are going to be united to him, they got to be the ones who eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that didn't make people happy when they heard that, right? Think about what Jesus says here in John 6, 51, uh, 53, and 54. I, I cut out 52 because it was the, the, the controversy verse where everybody got upset. Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Okay. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, so according to Jesus, what must you do to have eternal life? You need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Do, do you see why people got upset when he said that? But do you see there the sacramental union, right? There, there's the sign and the thing signified that he, he shows us at the Last Supper as he institutes the Lord's Supper. So then what does it mean, question 76, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? The answer, it means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we on earth, we are flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, and we forever live and are governed by one spirit as members of our body as by one soul. So in other words, to sum that up, to eat and drink of Christ means to have union and communion with Jesus. To, to share in his benefits as we partake of him by faith. To be in union, union with him by faith and therefore to share in everything that he has secured when he offered himself up once for all. Now that question of the presence of Christ by the Roman Catholic is not the wrong question. But it's the wrong answer. Right? Is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Yes, Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. Is he really present? He is really present in the Lord's Supper. Is he present physically in the Lord's Supper? Why? He's in heaven. It's a, it's a pretty simple 
uh, uh, Christological point, right? Christ ascended into heaven. That's where his body is. And this is where, you know, this is where it seems that the catechism is, is, is pushing, against, pushing back against the Lutheran position, too. Right? The conception of consubstantiation. Anybody know what consubstantiation is? Go ahead. No, no, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't pick on the Lutheran time. So they would disagree with that. They would say, well, we, know, we, we, we don't say that. They don't like this term, but for our saying, yes, the con, the whip. So the key phrase that they're always using is, very much Lutheran position, splitting the difference. We'll try to straddle the middle part. Yeah. Because sometimes it doesn't all talk to success. But they always say, no, he's not, no, he's not supposed to be present in the, in the Catholic way. But he is in and under the bread. So in some way he's here, but we can't quite say, but he's not the Catholic way. He's not, let's leave it as mystery. So, I mean, I'm not trying mystery. to. No, no, no. And I think that's, that's great. That's, I'm glad that you answered that because I wanted to get it straight, straight from, a, from a Lutheran source, a former Lutheran. Yes. You've, you've, you've heard it. Right, right. So we have to do something with this is my body and we have to do something with you need to eat of my flesh. And so there's, there's, a, there's, there's various ways because if, if you're going to take a Zwinglian view, if you're going to take a, memor a mere memorial view, then you say that Christ isn't present at all, right? That it is just a memorial. The sign is what it is, right? Or that door, like Jesus said, I am the door. Right. Or it's not the door. I mean, he is a door that partly in, 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 in the way that heaven is not physically a door. Yeah. So, uh, why can't you just say this is symbolic language? So in, in, it is, there is symbolic language there, but it's also sacramental language. A special, is there a special presence? Yeah. Yeah. What? Oh, the, how would you understand? Like, if you could go to the spiritual. Yeah, so it, as we move to the next set of questions, particularly, because they're going to deal next week with, um, they're going to deal particularly with what are we partaking of? That's, we'll get into that particular question about the spiritual presence, real presence, mystical presence, about that. But this is just, I just want to introduce that particular point so that we can get to that point in more detail next week. Yeah. I don't want to be real, but what dispensationalism about presence and presence? So I don't know that they say we're taking a Zwinglian view per se. I don't think they would say that. I think they would say it's a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. And so here we remember that Jesus died for our sins. Okay. But yeah. so, I haven't heard until I came to the church about spiritual presence. Yeah. 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 I'm appreciating this. How does this work? 
There isn't. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, Ray. There's a lot of other symbolism regarding bread. Yeah. Such as both those staples in the economy to live on bread. Yeah. But you also look back to the wilderness, God providing manna. You could also take bread, you could break it, you could break it apart, you could share it. So there's a lot of symbolism associated with. And, and that's, I think that's an important point, right? Because it is. So our two sacraments, we have water, which is generally readily available, right? Of all the things, you know, it's not a lollipop or something like that, right? And, and then bread and wine. Those are readily available to a majority of people. But you're right, it, there is that, that same symbolism. And Jesus is bringing that out when he could, says that he's the living bread that came down from heaven, right? Yeah. Why did John 15 about Jesus being the living vine? I just love his reminder to the heart of the body. Yeah. I mean, we are in such, we are his and, and he is our. It's just, it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. I all Yeah. And part of my own Lord, and this light flows through me. It's so exciting. Yeah. Ray. So, God knows our weakness. He knows we're still sinful. So, that remembrance, Jesus saying, it's a remembrance. Every time you do this, you're going to remember. And it's like also when we do our confession of sin, right? Corporately. But individually, we should be. Asking for forgiveness on a regular basis because it acknowledges that we're still sinners. Yeah. But on the other hand, we also remember that God has forgiven us in Christ. So it's yeah. It, it's very it's related to that aspect of a remembrance. Yeah, for sure, for sure, right. And that's exactly how the catechism speaks about it, right? Remembering and, and assuring, reminding and assuring. Yeah. So how is Christ present with us now? Is that different? Um, is that different than his presence in, Bob will go along with what you were saying, about omnipotence? Or omni, omnipresence, sorry. My omnis are all mixed up. Now. Yeah, but even outside of the Lord's Supper, right? What is the, what is the relationship, the presence of Jesus to the believer as opposed to his you know, general presence? The Holy Spirit in us. Yeah, the the Holy we 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 have 
the Holy Spirit in us, indwelling us, and it's that Spirit that binds us to Jesus, right, in our shared union with Him. And it's that same Spirit that not only binds us to Jesus, but as we as individuals are bound to Jesus, we're thereby bound to one another. Right? And so there's this bond of union that is inseparable and eternal that comes by His Spirit that we receive by faith, but He effects in our effectual call. Right? And we talked about that weeks and weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, tr- that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm trying to speak more generally about how Christ is always present with us. But I want to speak about the, the Lord's Supper. Sorry, I got it all. I, I took you in a different direction. <laughs> but I do want to talk about um, the Lord's Supper in particular, about how Jesus is, is present. But it's not something different in, in, in kind, right? It's not something different in kind that we get. Um, you know, it, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Um, so Christ is really present with us always spiritually, right? That's what it means to be those who are united to Jesus. We recognize that Christ, when he ascended into heaven... 2 Corinthians 15.45 became life-giving spirit. Does that mean that Jesus changed into the Holy Spirit? No. He's mediated through the Spirit to us. That's how Christ relates to us, is by His Holy Spirit. Right. That's why He told His disciples, it's better that I go, because I'm going to send the Helper, I'm going to send the Comforter. Because I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And how is Christ with us? He's with us by His Spirit, who unites us to Jesus. And I love the way that the, the, um, that the catechism puts it when it says, Although He is in heaven and we on earth, we are flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. In the Heidelberg Catechism. Oh, question 76. So we are united inseparably to Jesus by his Holy Spirit. And that is what the sign is in the Lord's Supper. That's what it's... This is the the truth that is being signified and sealed to us. Yeah, Bob. So we're united to Christ, and Christ reconciles us to the Father. So I don't... We're united to Jesus, and we stand with the Father, united to Jesus, and never apart from Jesus. Maybe that's a different way to go around it. 
We never stand on our own before the Father. Jesus doesn't stamp us with, appro- with his approval, and then Jesus goes away and we stand before the Father. That never can take place. We always come in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is, yeah, the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, and his Holy Spirit is his presence. Yeah. So I was going to say, with this idea of the Spirit, you know, maybe it's really obvious to everybody else, but for me personally, I found it really clarifying in answering this question of how is Jesus in, in, in the bread and wine? Where we start off saying, okay, he's not physically there, he's not the Lutheran, kind of, kind of there. Or the memorial view of he's not there. remembering something, then you're kind of left with this. The how is to really, to me, it was just so clear by saying, it's the Spirit who then connects me to Christ who is in heaven. And that is how he's then, it just, that's what I'm saying, maybe it's obvious. Yeah, right. No, and, and that's exactly, it's, and that's exactly right. That there is, yeah, and that there is a, when we partake, right, because we're remembering and proclaiming, and we're remembering and proclaiming when we hear the word too, right? The, the sacraments are visible words, right? The sacraments are visible words. They're proclaiming the same thing that the word proclaims. But when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are communing with the Lord. And it's evidencing in the sign the thing that is signified, which is union with Jesus. So that the person who sits in this chair with the the weakest of faith and and takes the bread and eats it and, and drinks the juice by faith, has a share in Jesus as much as everyone else, as much as we could possibly ever have, right? Even the weakest of faith receives Jesus and all his benefits. Yeah, John. Yeah. Uh, so it is incomprehensible in a way that there are certain things we're still not going to explain. Right. Uh, because we don't even fully understand our conditions because yeah. it's given to us. Yeah. We want to take credit for everything and have everything be superficial. Yeah. Yeah. And really, the point in the catechism gets to that point is that what is Christ doing? He's nourishing us. And he's refreshing us. He's reminding us and he's assuring us. He communes with us, telling us that we belong to him and that the benefits of the redemption purchased by him are ours. Okay. Any final questions? So when Jesus... I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Is that Christ partaking with us now or is that pointing towards something? 
I take that, that's Jesus pointing forward to when, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we are with him, body and soul, resurrected, glorified, enjoying his full presence and glory. Yeah, Robin. Types and shadows. <laughs> Types and shadows. And it's, it's in, I mean, you go, through, you go through Leviticus, you go through the law, and you look at all these different aspects of the ceremonial law of sacrifices, and there's, one, there's this desire to correspond, like, this particular one thing is the one thing, corresponds to this one thing about Jesus. And I think that, I think it's very multifaceted. So that if you read through Leviticus and you have your eyes on it, saying all of scripture is about Jesus and pointing me to Jesus, you see the multifaceted nature of what Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice accomplishes so that all of those sacrifices find their fulfillment in Jesus, including the showbread that sits before, including the incense as Christ ascends as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Right. All right. It looks like time's up. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you uh, for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you uh, that you have united us to your Son uh, by your Holy Spirit, who you send forth uh, by your grace and whom we receive by faith as the Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. Oh, Lord, would you continue to bless us in these things? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.